Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah chapter 30 tonight. At the end of last week, I just read out verses 18 to 24 just so that we could include them. But I want to dig in a little bit more into that passage. And then my goal tonight is to demonstrate that God was not just saying this to Jeremiah the prophet, but a couple of Jeremiah's contemporaries were Ezekiel and Daniel. Now, we have mentioned a few times that Daniel was taken into Babylon in the first deportation of people out of Jerusalem. Ezekiel was in the second deportation. So where Daniel was there with the high and the mighty and the well-educated, Ezekiel was with the common people. And all I want to demonstrate tonight is that what Jeremiah is saying is the same thing that Daniel is describing, which is the same thing that Ezekiel is prophesying. And all of them are looking forward to the fact that God is going to keep Judah, the southern kingdom, there in Babylon for their 70 years, and then there's going to be a restoration, but all three of them look past that into a future of final rest for Judah and Israel, the combined 12 tribes, in the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Years ago, I know I've told this story before, but years ago, in discussing a future for Israel, I was talking with David Morrison, Elder Ward, and I had commented that, gee, this promise of restoration for Israel appears so many times in the Bible. It's one of the most repetitious themes in the Bible, despite people not believing it and disagreeing with it. Nevertheless, it is said multiple different times by multiple different people. And I said sort of sarcastically to Elder Ward, how many times does God have to say something before we believe it? And he tamped down his pipe and leaned in close to me and said, only once. Because God really only has to say something once, and we should believe it. But this concept of the regathering, the restoration, the replanting of Israel, all 12 tribes, in the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is thematic to what the Old Testament prophets talk about. Yes, they talk about the coming of the Messiah. It is through the Messiah that the restoration of Israel is going to happen, and we're going to see some of that language tonight. And it's all going to be done not because of Israel. If we've learned anything from the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, we've learned that they're really bad, that they're really rebellious, that they don't deserve any kindness from God if God was to punish them and leave them in a punished state. He'd be well within his rights. But his character 
is on trial here. He has made promises. He has formed covenants. And so we're going to see out of Ezekiel tonight that God is going to say, it's not because of you that I'm doing this. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to take out your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to keep covenant with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. But then he keeps saying, but it's not because of you. It's for my own great name's sake that I'm doing this. It is God demonstrating the nature and the character of God. And so we have to remember that, and it's an important bit of theological reality when we think about God saving us, when we think about the finished work of Christ on our behalf, or we look forward to all the things that have been promised to us and sealed in us through his Holy Spirit. It's very easy for us to become frustrated with ourselves, at least if you're anything like me. You start becoming frustrated with yourself and thinking, how could God save someone like me? Because after all, look at how I am. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I really expected better of myself, and yet here I am still thinking these things or doing these things or acting this way. And it's just so important to remember that God is not saving you based on you. If he was saving you based on you, you'd get some credit because you got yourself good enough. But God is always doing these things by the glory of his own grace for his own good pleasure and in order to demonstrate who he is, what kind of God he is. And he does this saving work for completely undeserving sinners because he is demonstrating his own nature, his own character. He is doing it for his own great name's sake. So as we read this tonight about Israel, it does tell us what kind of God we're dealing with and what his motivation is. By the time we get to Jeremiah 31, he's going to declare to all the families of Israel, well, here, we'll just read it. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went in to find its own rest, and the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness, and again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt. So the motivation is right there. Why is he restoring Israel? Why is he being faithful to Israel? Well, because of covenants he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because once he says he loves you, that's an everlasting love. As long as there has ever been God, he has loved his people, which is very reassuring to know that God loved you before he created you that he chose you, wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life because of this great love that he has for you, and that he's a God who doesn't change. He's a God who doesn't change his mind. You're not going to talk him out of loving you. So that motivation of love is a demonstration of his great compassion, of his great mercy upon people who just simply don't deserve it. And we need to remember that that is his motivation for us, but it's also his motivation for Israel because most of the people who argue that God has changed his mind about Israel, that he has given up on Israel, that yes, he used the language of election and chosen nation and everything else, but they were just for demonstration purposes. But now Christ has come, 
and then he is the true Israel, therefore the church becomes the true and the spiritual Israel, and that national Israel, the one who had these covenants and the prophets and these promises from God, that that Israel, national, God's done with them, and the reasoning that he has done with them is because of what they did, because they rebelled against him and uh, rejected their Messiah. So because they were that wrong, that bad, that evil, God has rejected them. But you don't find that language anywhere in the Bible. Instead, what you find is the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah that are all bad news so that you do get a really good feel for the fact that these people don't deserve the least thing from God. And yet he makes these outstanding promises to them because of his own namesake and because of his own faithfulness and because of what he describes as his everlasting love. It doesn't change, it's not altered, and it is forever. And when he says that in Jeremiah 31.3, he's saying it specifically to the families of Israel. That's what verse 1 tells us. He is saying to all the families of Israel, I've loved you with an everlasting love. So then when did that change? Well, it didn't. And so that is... The motivation, that is the guarantee that God is going to do the rest of this. Okay, so the rest of what? What is he going to do? Jeremiah 30, starting at verse 18, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. Once upon a time, they were such a great nation. Their fortunes were so fortunate that kings would come from other countries People would travel distances to come and see the splendor of Solomon. They were a powerful, unassailable nation there in the Middle East. At this point, they're a nation that's being conquered and taken into slavery, taken into submission by foreign enemies. That's a long way down. And yet in the midst of that, God says, I'm going to restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. And I'm going to have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city, that's Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt on its ruin. And the palace shall stand in its rightful place. And from them, from Israel, shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. And I will multiply them and they shall not be diminished. I will also honor them, and they shall not be insignificant. At the minute that he is telling them this, they have become insignificant. They have become destroyed, a byword, a hissing. People would make fun of them because this once great nation had been demolished and taken into servitude. And yet here is God saying that he's going to reestablish them and he's going to replant them. Now, 70 years after the Babylonian captivity, they did spend 70 years there in Babylon. And then God did restore them so that they could rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. But these promises seem to go beyond that. There is the promise that the city is going to be rebuilt on its ruins. The palace will stand in its rightful place. But then we know that in 70 AD, it was all torn down yet again. So it was not a permanent planting. And yet the language here says, 
from them is going to come thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I'll multiply them and they won't be diminished. That's far beyond what actually happened between Babylon and Rome in 70 AD. In fact, verse 20 says, their children also shall be as formerly. In other words, they're going to become multiplied. Their congregation shall be established before me. Established. Never to be conquered again. Never to be taken out of their land again. Okay, well, that didn't happen immediately following the Babylonian captivity. And I will punish all of their oppressors. That didn't happen. Because again, Rome, 70 AD. To this very day, their oppressors continue to oppress Israel. So we would have to say that that promise has not come true yet. Yet God says, I'm going to punish all their oppressors. And then very significantly, verse 21, and their leader, actually the Hebrew is better translated, I think, their mighty one, shall be one of them. Instead of being a foreign ruler, instead of being a foreign king, instead of having any other nation ruling over them, they're going to have someone from within their midst, a Jew among the Jews, is going to be their leader, their mighty one. Well, if you look back in that very same chapter to verse 9, we're given a clue about that. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So the house of David, the lineage of David, the throne of David is going to be established again. Well, that hasn't occurred yet, and we know that that's going to occur when Christ himself takes David's throne ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel there on David's throne in Jerusalem. A ruler will come forth from their midst. And then this next statement gives us a tremendous amount of theology and also should inspire reverence and worship before God because God himself says, that ruler, that mighty one, I will bring him near and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me? And that's really important theologically. God himself encased himself in a light that no man approaches. And then he says, who would risk his life to approach me? You don't get to just burst into the presence of God. That is why it is so important that he sent Christ as our mediator so that we have access to God through the mediatorial work of Christ. And so he could say, no man comes to the Father but by me. So it is through Christ that we have access to God. It is through God bringing Christ close to him. And then he admits, nobody just approaches me or I will kill them. Now that concept is found even in the book of Esther. After Mordecai exposes the plot to Esther and he tells her, go and tell the king. She says, I can't just approach the king. If I approach him and he doesn't raise his scepter, I'm dead. Well, same thing here with God. If God doesn't draw you to himself, you cannot just approach him willy-nilly. You cannot just burst into his presence and think that you're going to be accepted by saying, hey, here I am, lucky you. 
I accept you. I decided to make you Lord and Savior. Hey, dig me. That's dead man talk. Instead, it has to be God who, by his grace and love, brings you to himself. And because you are a filthy sinner, you have to come through Christ, the one who paid your sin debt for you. Therefore, no man comes to the Father but through Christ. But then Daniel picks up that same idea, that exact same imagery. Now, after the book of Jeremiah, you'll find the Lamentations. After the Lamentations, you find Ezekiel. After Ezekiel, you find Daniel. They're all grouped together there in the Old Testament because they're all happening in that same time frame, that same Babylonian time frame. So turn to Daniel chapter 7 for a moment. I'm going to start reading at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing And coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were opened. And then I kept looking, because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. That's the little horn. You should be familiar with him by now. And I kept looking until the beast was slain. And its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, all of those former kingdoms on the earth, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, the same way that in Jeremiah, God said he was going to destroy all those enemies who had come up against Israel. The rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them. So they had a period of time that was granted to them At the appointed period of time, they were all on the stage of history exactly when God determined they were going to be. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, And a kingdom. Then all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, what was the purpose of the Son of Man being brought before God? So that he could be given a kingdom that would last forever, and God would establish peace on earth through his king, who is a descendant of David, sitting on David's throne. All of these pieces line up. And once again in Daniel, you see the same sequence of events. First, there's the time of trouble. There's the time of punishment for Israel. There's the time of the little horn, the the Antichrist. Then there is the destruction of him because he is the culmination of all the nations that have ever ruled over Israel and then the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. So Daniel has the same timeline that Jeremiah has, 
which is the same timeline that we've seen in Zechariah and that we're going to see tonight in Ezekiel. The timeline is very consistent. And at the same time, there is this continual proclamation that after a time of various different kingdoms ruling over Israel, there's going to be a time of trouble that is going to result in the return of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom, the regathering of Israel, all 12 tribes, into their own land again. And in the midst of all that, God says, that's my doing. I'm the one who's going to do that. Who could possibly approach me unless I was to invite them, to draw them, to establish them. And so God is again saying, this is all about me. I'm doing it. It's my everlasting love. It's my covenant. It's my grace. This is my proclamation of myself, demonstrating myself to be an oath-keeping, covenant-keeping God. So we have to remember the kind of God we're dealing with. We're dealing with a God who keeps his word no matter what no matter the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, there is still the promise of everlasting love and the establishment of them back in their own land and the voices of thanksgiving and merrymaking and multiplication of them as they are established as a congregation and as a kingdom. And their leader will be one of them, says Jeremiah. And their ruler shall come forth out of their own midst. And I will bring him near, and he shall approach me, the same way Daniel described. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. And then this statement that God says through the mouth of every one of his prophets when talking about the future of Israel and his faithfulness to them, it is all summed up in the statement, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's an absolute. That's going to happen. Now, were they staying true to that statement through the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah? No, absolutely not. They were chasing after foreign gods, and he said they were committing their adulteries with their foreign lovers. They weren't keeping his law. They weren't keeping his commands or his Sabbaths. They were not acting like Yahweh was their one and only God. And yet he says... You will be, despite my punishing you, scattering you, putting you in foreign nations, despite that, you will be ultimately my people, and you will acknowledge me as your God. Demonstrated by the fact that from them, when they are regathered, there will be the voice of thanksgiving and the voice of merriment coming from them as God establishes them and multiplies them. So he will be their God, they will be his people. And how is he going to accomplish that? The timeline doesn't change. First, there's going to be this tempest of the Lord, the wrath of God. Behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intention of his own heart. And in the latter days, you'll understand this. So in the latter days, he is going to ultimately reestablish Israel. He's going to pour out all his wrath, this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's all going to occur. 
And for the generation of Israel that is alive and sees all that, they're going to understand it. They're going to comprehend it. Now, how are they going to understand it and comprehend it? Ezekiel is going to answer that question for us. But after this time of trouble, look at chapter 31, starting at verse 1. At that time, what time? The latter days, when you're going to understand it. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. He just keeps saying this. It's declared over and over through all of his prophets. The time is coming when they will be his people and they will acknowledge him as their God because thus says the Lord, the people who survive through that wrath, through that time of trouble, through Jacob's cleaning and cleansing, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel when it went to find its rest. And the Lord appeared to Israel from afar, and he says to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Remember a moment ago, he said he was going to draw their leader, Christ, to himself, and then he added, who would ever approach me? How dare they come near me? and risk their life that way. Nobody would do that. In order for anybody to get to God, he has to draw them. And here he promises Israel, I've loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore my loving kindness has drawn you to myself. And again, I will build you, and I will plant you. You shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. The ones that he's been spending the first 29 chapters saying, you're a harlot. And saying, you have performed adulteries against me. But when he cleanses them, when he forgives them, when he draws them so that they are his people and he is their God, he refers to them as a virgin. Astounding. He's going to so cleanse their sinfulness, their depravity, that they are going to appear as a virgin before him. And I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. And again you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. And again you will plant vineyards. And then we will continue in chapter 31 next week. For the rest of the night, let's take a look at Ezekiel because Ezekiel, as I said, was in the second deportation of Judahites into Babylon. And he picks up these same themes. He's seeing the same things from God. He's proclaiming this same future to the people who were there in Babylon. He is getting the same visions. Go to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm going to start reading at verse 11. The beginning of chapter 34, he is prophesying against the leaders of Israel, who are referred to as the shepherds, just like in Jeremiah, that they were the shepherds who ended up scattering the flock. So God takes responsibility for his own sheep. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and seek them as a shepherd cares for his herd 
in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Exact same language again. God saying, I will gather my sheep because they've been scattered. I'm going to go get them. And I will bring them out from the peoples and I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. And I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. And there they will lie down in good grazing ground. And they will feed in rich pastures on the mountain of Israel. How many times now has he said on the mountains of Israel, in the pastures of Israel, in the grazing land of Israel? He's talking about that very land that he's going to bring them back to. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. And I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered and bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. I will go and seek the lost. Isn't that interesting that when Jesus was on the planet talking to his apostles, he explained his ministry as, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, when he sent them out two by two, he told them, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go into the way of the Samaritans. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why would he use that language? Because Ezekiel said that's what he's going to do. The lost sheep are Israel. And God said, I'm going to find them. I'm going to regather them. First, though, their own Messiah has to come, pay for their sinfulness, pay for their rebellion. Then I will regather them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And so Jesus declared what he was doing on the planet. He was there for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to chapter 36. I'm going to start reading at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. He's talking to the northern scattered tribes, the ten tribes of the house of Israel, the lost tribes, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's talking to them and says, I'm going to regather you, but not because of you. Everywhere you went in the nations where I sent you, you profaned my name. I'm going to regather you to reestablish my own name. And I am about to act but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Notice the contrast. God says, I am going to establish my great holy name because you are still sinful. You have profaned my name. It's not because of you. You are depraved. You're not even in good standing and good covenant with me yet. 
And yet, because of my reputation, because of who I am and the fact that my people have been scattered, allows the nations to mock. And therefore, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to keep covenant with you. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you animals. I'm going to give you comfort in your own land because that's the covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to vindicate the holiness of my own great name which you profaned among the nations. And you profaned it in their midst. And then the nations, when I do that, when I regather you, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So God is all about glorifying himself. He is going to glorify himself by punishing his rebellious people, in their rebellion, he's going to reestablish them. In a moment, we're going to read that he is going to put his spirit in them, exactly like Zechariah also said. He's going to take out their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh, and he's going to be their God. They are going to be his people, and he's going to do all that so that all the nations who had profaned God, who had mocked Israel, all those nations will know that the God of Israel is the only true God and they will worship him when he reestablishes his rebellious people. Do you get the big picture here? I got a uh-huh from Tom. The rest of you, you getting the big picture here? I'm going to prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands. And I will bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Does that sound familiar? That's very New Testament language, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine upon you, and I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Isn't that what we have always taught about one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? He brings you to repentance. He makes you realize how sinful you are before a holy God and makes you realize how badly you need a Savior. God says, that's what I'm going to do. For Israel, for the northern ten tribes, for the lost scattered sheep, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And then you're going to realize your abominations and your iniquities. 
Verse 32, I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. That's the Jeremiah language. And the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say the desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. And then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock for sacrifices, like a flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste cities become filled with flocks of men, and then they will know that I am the Lord. It is right behind that that Ezekiel records the valley of dry bones. I'm not going to recite all of that. You know it. But I will read God's explanation of it, starting in verse 11. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That's who he's been talking about for the last several chapters. The whole house of Israel, behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Right. They've been scattered. They've been cut off from Jerusalem, cut off from the temple, cut off from their heritage, cut off from their own people group. And so they have no hope. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. Notice this is scattered, cut off Israel. He still calls them my people. The ones he refers to as the virgin of Israel. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your own land. And then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. Then God tells Ezekiel to take two sticks. And on one of them, he's going to write, this is for Joseph. This is the northern tribe, the stick of Ephraim and the whole house of Israel. And on the other one, he's going to write for Judah and the sons of Israel, his companions. And then he's supposed to take those two sticks and put them together in his hand. And when people say to them, what's the deal with the sticks, Zeke? This is what he's supposed to tell them. That's the way they're going to say it, by the way. Verse 21, you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and I will gather them from every side and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. And one king will be king over all of them. And they will no longer be two nations. And they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. 
and they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Are you feeling a theme here? This is what all the prophets are saying around the same period of time that the Babylonian captivity is happening. Daniel says it. Jeremiah says it. Ezekiel says it. You'd think at some point we would also say it. Or at very least, we would all agree with it. But then notice that Ezekiel sees the same ultimate kingdom that the other prophets have already described. Verse 24, and my servant David will be king over them. Just like Jeremiah said. My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them The next thing we're going to see in Jeremiah 31 is the promise of the new covenant. Not like the first covenant that God made with them, which covenant they broke when he took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. He's very specific about which covenant they broke. And then he's going to establish a new covenant, a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. And notice the language. It's a covenant he makes with them. When Jeremiah describes it, He says it's to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. The new covenant, get this right, belongs to the 12 tribes of Israel. We, by God's grace, are saved through that covenant. But just because we're in that covenant or saved through the grace of that covenant doesn't eliminate Israel and Judah, who are the ones who have the continual repeated promise from God that this everlasting covenant of grace belongs to them because ultimately he will be their God. They will be his people. How many times does God have to say something before we believe it? That's right, only once. And yet he says it over and over and over again. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. Notice the covenant is everlasting. The kingdom is forever. David will be their prince forever. They will live on that land forever. Do you think God, the eternal one, knows what he's talking about when he talks about eternality and says forever? seems to be saying repeatedly that once he establishes this, it goes on forever. The everlasting kingdom, the everlasting established rulership of Christ. That goes on forever. Has that happened yet? No. So it has to happen. It's still forthcoming. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them 
and I will multiply them. That's the same promise we're seeing repeatedly. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst. What a surprise. Forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you get the sense that God's trying to tell you something? He keeps saying they will be my people. I will be their God. And what will the end result of all that be? And the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies, separates Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst of them forever. God is establishing who he is. He is demonstrating his nature, character, and power over human history. And that is going to reach its climax when he reestablishes Israel. So is there any chance that he's not going to do that? He's going to do it. He's going to do that. He has to do that or else you have to say the Bible is not true. And if he does not do that, I keep stating repeatedly, you could probably all say this with me, if he does not do that for Israel, you have no guarantee he's going to do it for you. Because you're every bit as wicked, you're every bit as rebellious, and you are being saved by the covenant of grace, whereby he drew you to himself, took out your stony heart, gave you that heart of flesh, put his spirit inside you, And because he did that for you, he also said, I'm going to do that for Israel. And he didn't say, I'm going to do it for you to the exclusion of Israel. He said, I'm going to do it for Israel and oh yeah, you. We are adopted into promises and covenants that belong to Israel. I know I've said it repeatedly, but every covenant you find in the Bible, bar none, every single covenant in the Bible is made with Israel. We are just the very fortunate, gracious recipients of God being very kind to us and allowing Gentiles into covenant relationship with Israel's God. And I do not understand, I do not comprehend, I do not fathom how it is that people can say, the grace of God has brought me to himself, but in so doing, he eliminated his promises to Israel. The promises to Israel have to come true or else you have no confidence that yours are going to come true. You get it? Absolutely. Tom sounds convinced, so that's good. Glad for that. I'm just glad to hear good news. (laughs) Well, you know, Micah said that to me last night. He said, you know, after 29 chapters of very heavy Jeremiah stuff, I'm glad we got to the good news part because the bad news went on for quite a while. But I think that was God just demonstrating how bad. So that when we get to the good news, it's just grace, 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 grace. It can't be anything within them. And then on top of that, God makes it really obvious and says, I'm not doing this because of you. I'm doing this because of me. I'm demonstrating my own great name. So that's the God we worship. That's a God you really ought to get on your face in front of. A God who can glorify himself through a wretch like you. That's a pretty astounding God. It is. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. 
We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.